0: Greetings and welcome to the Take Back Our Schools podcast. I'm Beth Feely here with my co-host Andrew Gutman and we're two accidental activist parents who woke up and spoke out about issues we saw in our children's schools. And on this podcast, we tackle those issues while looking for solutions. And today we welcome Frank McCormick. Frank is a former public school teacher and former teachers union member. Uh, He taught for 12 years, uh, most recently at Waukegan High School in the far north suburbs of Chicago. And last year, Frank started exposing critical pedagogy in his district, and he founded the Chalkboard Heresy Blog, which is a collection of essays and editorials and stories about his time in public education. So he has been on the front lines, and he is here to give us some insights and hopefully some green shoots in the education landscape. We'll we'll see. So welcome,
1: Frank. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Glad to be here.
0: Well, why don't we start with you and your story? Um, we'd love to hear what got you into teaching and what were your early
1: uh, teaching years like? What got me into teaching originally, um, I think w- w- there were two kind of forces. One, I had kind of this love of learning that, that I developed you know, over my life. And I wanted to kind of share that with students. And um, as a lot of teachers say today, teach them to be critical thinkers. But if I'm being honest, too, there was also the kind of uh, missionary liberalism of being a young college student who was kind of, um, I would say, indoctrinated to a degree by, you know, having only left-wing professors and uh, being exposed to that kind of system your whole life. And so you want to replicate it. And, you you know, you think it's the the virtuous, correct way to live and that that's kind of your, your calling as a teacher. And that is something that was definitely encouraged and um, you know, praised for wanting to do that by your professors. So you didn't see anything wrong with that.
2: Can I can I stop here once again, do you have a teaching degree? Did you go to an ed school or is this just an undergraduate you're talking about?
1: This is um, when under, undergraduate, yeah, when I got okay. my teaching degree. So you did a dual major uh, in education and history and then you got your license uh, along with that.
0: And you were a history teacher, we should mention that and that is definitely one of the problem areas that people are reporting about. Um, so I guess early on, did you see that you had, like were, were these issues that you ended up leaving over, were they, were they evident back when you started?
1: The issues that are going on today, um, they were less pronounced. It was, um, I would say that the political bias was always there. But it was something that happened more organically. It, it was a product of teachers' values and their own kind of bias. And I would say to a degree then that acted kind of as a as a control on it because you didn't necessarily have, you know, the school sanctioning your political values and beliefs and giving you kind of the authority to proselytize to your students. And that is really the, the big difference today is, as I've said, it's become kind of the um, the ideology, whatever you want to call it, wokeism or progressivism or, you know, the new orthodoxy, it's become kind of the, uh, religion of schools. It's their, their state, their mandate. Um, so that's, that's the big difference I've seen. You can now openly teach towards a certain ideology and and be praised by your, you know, school principal or the district.
2: When, When did that become apparent to you? Is it, you know, after 2020, George Floyd, or was it much before that?
1: I would say it started in 2016 with uh, the, the election of Donald Trump. A lot of teachers and administrators kind of like, what's happened? We've elected, you know, the, the the new Hitler. So we therefore messed up along the way. And we have to make sure that we don't repeat those mistakes. So we got to start with the kids. We got to make sure that the next generation of voters does not elect Donald Trump. And then in 2020, that was when things have really accelerated because that was kind of a... Um, they had a martyr and a validation for what they wanted to do, which is now, you know, well, you know, this, this terrible thing has happened and therefore we don't have a choice anymore. And that's when you saw school administrators um, start to form these DEI departments rapidly or, you know, in our case, accelerate the plan because now they had the, you know, moral authority as they sought to do so.
2: So, all right, let, let's wait, hang on a second. Accelerate the plan.
1: So you're yeah. You're that's
2: my play. question too. <laughs> okay, okay. Well, uh, tell, tell tell us what you. I mean, I I know what you mean by that, but tell us why you're coming to that conclusion. Did you see that plan coming? Was it a surprise to you? How do you know that plan was in place? And how long do you think that plan was in place that they then used, you know, the events of George Floyd to accelerate from?
1: Yeah, in my school district, I would say that they did, I mean, they had announced that they were going to be forming a DEI department. It was something that was kind of in talks. It was just moving very, and I think kind of conservatively and cautiously because they, you know, didn't know if they could justify the cost or how people would necessarily react as this something that's necessary. But also, I think that, you know, a lot of teachers and administrators felt and have always felt Um, this conflict between what they feel called to do, which is, you know, I want to make a more progressive society because, and and their intentions don't get me wrong for many of them, their intentions are, are good. You know, like any person who feels they've been uh, saved or exposed to the religion of truth wants to share that message with the world. And um, now they felt like they really could do that. Um, Do I think it was like a conspiracy no, um, but it certainly still happened regardless. Um,
0: that, yeah, I was not, like when you saw things happening in 2016, it seems like there was a lot of a good foundation laid. And yep. then George Floyd was a spark and then it just it took off. Um, and I think I've heard that in other situations, too. What um, in terms of history, did you have latitude in your classroom to kind of run it the way that you wanted to run it or were you getting messages from administration to kind of start teaching in certain ways and kind of hewing to this this party line about you know how the school was going to be run
1: in my school district i had and and this was more a a function of their incompetence i had a lot of freedom (laughs) (laughs) so you could kind of do what you wanted and um now i'm going to say that a lot of people are going to say well wait a second so there's there's not these mandates and messages. No, I, that's not what I'm saying. I think the implications are something that a lot of people don't want to admit. And I, I can say it because I'm a teacher. They'll say, we know most teachers aren't on board with this. And I'm like, no, they are, guys. I really, I really wish I wish it wasn't the case. But, yeah. you know, um, they are. I was at one point in, in my career, as were many of my colleagues, um, things changed for me over time. And I started to kind of pull back from that and, and kind of recommit to kind of neutrality or, or prodding students um, from multiple angles. And, um, but yeah,
2: what, what, so- what, what made you switch? I mean, like w- w- what was your realization that what you had been, the way you had been taught to teach or the way you, that I don't want to say indoctrinated, but I, I, I think you probably do use that word for, you know, not just for students, for the way teachers are, uh, you know, taught to teach, but w- what, what was the switch for you? It made you open your eyes to this?
1: Sure. Um, I think what really changed for me was the reality of what the system was like from the inside, kind of the corruption and seeing how it was affecting me and it was affecting my students and being surrounded by just absolute incompetence, apathy, um, self-serving behavior. From the from administration.
2: The I'm, I'm guessing you're not. Oh other yeah, teachers, but Th- no, this, is, this
1: was, this was, this was systemic to the anyone in the institution from administrators to teachers. It was like, it was like, everyone was in on this kind of, you know, con, like, don't say anything. Don't point it out. You got a job. I got a job. It's a good deal. Just keep your mouth shut. I had, I had a problem doing that. And I kind of lost faith. in when I went into teaching, I had, you know, this faith in public education as, you know, it's it's a government program and it can uplift students in the poor communities. And I go there, and reality is totally different. And I had like this kind of crisis of faith. I mean, that's mm-hmm. why I I think, you know, you can really understand wokeness as in, in a religious paradigm. And what I would say is that I had the equivalent of, you know, kind of a uh, loss of uh, my my faith and religion and um, spent a lot of time searching and, you know, then came to kind of different conclusions.
0: What did that look like in your classroom? But can you point to an example, uh, like a specific incident? And also, I'd love to hear in terms of your school, like what type of school that you were in and when and about the students and how it affected them.
1: Sure. Um, So I'll start with that. I was in an urban, um, which is code or, you know, I'm still I'm still kind of programmed to use the teacher's language. It was a black and Hispanic community. Uh, primarily predominantly school, 96%. um, And, you know, we would say it's an urban or inner city school, but that, you know, I think people understand there's high concentration of poverty and social issues um, that come with poverty. And in terms of what I started to do differently, I I remember, let's see, I think this was, was maybe 26 or 27. I'd been teaching for a few years and I was really getting interested in learning kind of more about economics and kind of the classical economic thinkers and uh, in a way I hadn't been exposed to in college and high school. And I was teaching um, what they called American government at the time. And, and, you know, I had this freedom and uh, my kids were always interested, you know, kind of, they had this romanticization, I think, especially growing up in a, kind of urban, you know, poor environment of like the rags to riches story and they want like business. And, you know, a lot of them actually liked Donald Trump and admired him because they saw him as kind of this folk hero. And so I said, do you guys want to learn about like some economics along with your government? Are you interested in this? And I started to expose them to kind of like empirical models and uh, theories and lessons about how markets work. And it was something I was kind of learning along with them and it was kind of exciting And um, they really liked them. We kind of committed as a class to really focusing on what was like, we could verify through empiricism. So we learned about that and argumentation and how do you build arguments. That really changed my whole class. And um, that's one thing I I, I probably missed the most is like, you could really see a change in students because they started to become true critical thinkers, not not critical Mm -hmm. with a capital C, critical, you know, theory, but critical in the sense that they were demanding in, in other classes or in my class, they'd be like, well, what about the evidence, Mr. McCormick? Because that was something we'd always say is, you know, you have to build your argument on what you can, what you can uh, empirically prove uh, in the form of like evidence and facts. And um, you know, yeah, that was, that was how things changed. And, and it was a good change. I think for my students, it was something that uh, many of them still talk about, you know, former students to this day, how they remember those parts of my class.
0: Yes, yeah, sounds empowering. How about that? Uh, I, I could, I could see. And so, was the school? Did they come down on you for that, or where did you start? St- uh, start sensing some tension.
1: By that point, I had, I learned how to navigate the system well enough to to play the game, where I could run my class how I wanted to, but keep up appearances in other ways that would kind of keep me flying under the radar. Um, I think one thing about what happened kind of in my story that, you know, people should probably know is that like, it was a very, I made a decision to kind of, in some ways, make an example out of myself. I said, I'm going to like put my name to this blog and I'm going to write about it. And so I could have probably gotten away with, yeah, I mean, look, it's, it's a, it's a public school underperforming you could get away with a lot there. Unfortunately, that's the truth. And a lot of people do. Uh, and sometimes you can make that work in your favor, you know, like as I did, I've tried to use it as a force for good, but, um, so I could have done that, but, um, what I started to see around me and in in other teachers and other classrooms, I was just, I I couldn't go on with that and I couldn't be quiet. And that was when that, that was post George Floyd or that was post George Floyd. It was 2021 when critical race theory had kind of entered the, uh, public lexicon, and everyone was kind of talking about, you know, the debate was really, I mean, we focused on the word CRT, but what it was really ultimately about was, you know, is there ideological agendas in in the curriculum embedded in instruction? And when I saw, you know, was watching the news as everyone does, or was, you know, on Twitter, I saw teachers um, lying and saying there's, you know, these parents, they're crazy. They're nuts. They don't know what they're talking about. They've never been in a classroom. And I said, well, I have. And, and, you know, I think probably a lot of teachers thought that, you know, or, or, you know, a sizable number of the conservative teachers are like, but, you know, we all know that they're, it's like in the profession, like no one's going to say anything because who, who would do that? And I'm like, well, Maybe I'm crazy enough to do it. And I I just kind of asked myself, what if I did? What if I just kind of exposed it and started talking about what was really happening? It would be, I kind of thought at the time, I was like, this this would be revolutionary because um, the only other person at the time I knew was who had done a similar thing was Paul Rossi. And, you know, we talked on the phone before and I said, you know, he gave me some advice as I'm thinking of just exposing the whole thing and um, somehow managed to convince my wife. to let me do it and go along with it, which is, uh, yeah. Did you talk to any of the other teachers at your school about this? I mean, there have to been at least a handful
2: that had, you know, similar sympathies to, you know, your views. I mean, did you try to, did you know them? Did you try to find them? Did they, you know, were they on board with what you were doing? Were they just too scared to, you know, come out?
1: Yeah, I did find um, a group of teachers that supported me, but they also kind of made it clear like that they'd have to give their support, you know, more privately and they, they're, they're rooting for me. And, sometimes they'd like wade into argument like people would be talking about me at the teacher center so they'd like kind of come in and be like "Well, wait a second don't you think he's got a point on this and that was their kind of way of supporting me um i will say there was one teacher uh who was really great he was uh a union rep and he um came to bat for me in a way that no one else did um and i'll if i can just share share this brief story we i was at one point called into the district office with their uh, attorney who was there and who wanted to read me the ethics code and make sure that, you know, she kind of flipped it. Like, we think you might be indoctrinating students and you might have the political agenda. And he laid into her so hard. Like he said, are you kidding me? That afterwards she, like she picked up her drink and she was shaking and she couldn't get the words out. Um, and, and so that was, that was pretty cool for me to see like one person really go to bat for me. I think that that matters when you're doing this kind of thing. And the fight we're all kind of participating in, or the, you know, for our schools and for our kids, um, I always tell people when you, you can make a really big difference in someone's life, when you just kind of go to bat for them, when they're putting, you know, their social life, there on the line and, and as many of us do, um, or their job.
0: And so what were the kids saying? As they observed, I mean, did they know that you were speaking out and publicly and, you know, putting stuff out on Twitter and the internet and, and what were they, what was their reaction?
1: Yeah, I was able to keep it, um, kind of out of their range of vision for a while. Were you anonymous?
2: Would you do this anonymously at the beginning or you did this under your name?
1: So I did it anonymously for, I think about three weeks in the summer. Then I was like, you know, that was about as much as I could take. It doesn't work. Um. I got more legitimacy when I had a a face to it and people are like, oh, he's a real person and a real teacher. Um, Eventually, I think what happened, I I can't prove this, but all of a sudden, um, kids started to know all at once and they were talking about it in their classrooms with teachers. So I think what happened is teachers got fed up and started telling the kids about it. Um, because I said, well, wait a second. I said, how do you know? I said, have you guys been on Twitter? Well, I don't have a Twitter account. No, I, I don't follow you. I said, well, who's telling you I'm racist. Who's telling you I'm a white supremacist kind of like, uh, well, I just, I've just heard it around. And I'm like, look, mm-hmm. these, these kids aren't like following the same like Twitter circles. We are, I mean, they, and, and some of the stuff, you know, I, I questioned if they always understood what I was talking about. Cause I'd ask them like, what am I talking about? And they couldn't tell me. So I think they were, been told by teachers, uh, certain things. And I think that was purposeful because it was a way to accelerate the process of making my life difficult.
0: Yeah. And then also parents had, did you hear from any parents either pro or con?
1: I didn't, I think, you know, again, the community I was in, I think a lot of people were kind of perplexed by like, what's, what's going on. And, you know, these are, these are parents who, especially in like, uh, it's a mostly mexican town they have kind of the idea of like teachers you take care of school that's your job i drop my kid off like i don't need to hear about it i don't want like that's you do you do your job you take your you, they kind of put a lot of trust in you like my kid's bad i you know give you the authority to discipline them they'll sometimes say like you know you can hit my kid you can slap them we're like no we can't do that <laughs> and they'll say i give you permission or right. like that's not how it works but so that that was their attitude and they um didn't you know necessarily? I think fully understand it. And some people that did actually in the community, and I spoke to. There's one person in particular. Uh, he was. I, I would describe him as a as a black nationalist. I mean, he's all about kind of black identitarianism and black nationalism. And originally he was someone I really butted heads with. And then you know we went out to lunch together, and he started listening to me and started to find what I was saying really interesting. And I started talking about the effects that you know our school system was having on kids and the community. And, um, you know, to this day now we still talk and he's really open to, he reads, uh, he read Charles Love's book and, uh, great. loved it was, you know, texting me how excited he was and how great it was. So, you know, people surprise you. And, and that was, you know, there's a lot, I mean, there's, a, I can talk a lot about like the bad times and the, you know, times I was really down and feeling hopeless, but there were a lot of really positive kind of rays of sunshine that kept me going. So what were you, you know, what were you exposing?
2: And and I continue to expose and what, I mean, give us your teacher's take on why it's so bad for kids, for the country, for the world. I mean, you know, what, what, what is it in your view?
1: Sure. Um, I first noticed um, it was an email that went out about the Dr. Seuss books in the school library. And uh, these books, they said, we need to make room for more inclusive books, make room. I guess there was Dr. Seuss books were taking up a tremendous amount of space, you know, or something like that. So they said, we're going to make room for more inclusive books because of problematic images. We're going to get rid of these. And I said, okay, something's going on. So I started anonymously sending FOIA requests to the district. I said, I want to know some of this training they went to over the summer. And the first training was a slideshow. And on it, it was um, like you know revolutionary students, and it was uh, Black Panthers holding guns in it. So this is sorry. Had, this is teacher training. This is teacher training. Yep, That is, that was select...
2: o- required. Optional. It suggested. was
1: optional as as part of forming this DEI department. So okay. it was kind of a preview of what was going to come down the pipeline. Mm-hmm. And open it was to like... anybody
2: or only open to certain teachers <laughs> of certain races. I mean, how, how did they? How did that? come about.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think they, I can't prove it, but they, they, they were looking for a certain, you know, profile of teacher that they wanted to fit and that they wanted to um, cater to and felt would be receptive to it. I think they were also looking for people that would affer- like what they were trying to do is kind of train the, uh, the the first line of troops that would go bring this into the schools and say, this is the mandate and give, they wanted to give the idea some authority by having it be teachers and not just administrators. And, you know, they had native land acknowledgement and they had Huey Newton pictures and they called, they said, hello, fellow or comrades in their greeting. And I'm like, this is. Comrades? Wow. Oh. Yeah, comrades. They they said, I mean, literally, I, I, you know, it's like, welcome comrades. And. um, So how many teachers just, participated in this training? I mean, uh, was it a big number? I would say a few dozen Okay. To start. And you, were, you
2: were one of them?
1: No, I, I I got this not. through okay. the yeah, I got this through the FOIA process. Um, okay. And I was kind of, I think I actually did apply, but they never got back to me. I applied to be on the like DEI kind of formation committee, but they were not interested in having me by that point. Um, yeah. And, and then I started to, you know, it was just more and more would come out. Um, I, I did a, and I've suggested this to people, you ask them to the keyword search in their emails for like a certain year in the FOIA process. And I looked up critical race theory. I said, well, everyone's saying that it's, it's, it doesn't exist in our schools. Let's see what our district's talking about. And sure enough, found an email and it's asking them to read up on critical race theory from a DEI consultant. it got worse and worse when I started to then look into our Google Drive. And that's where I really started to get people mad as I start to go into our shared Google Drive, where teachers had, I think, a lot of times inadvertently put, like, they didn't realize they had their lessons up there. And I saw, like, lessons, like having students analyze the relationship between police and slave patrols. Hmm. Um, And that was just shocking to me.
0: We'll be back with more with Frank McCormick right after this.
1: Hey, James Latitude, reminding you that just because the elections are over doesn't mean there's not stuff to talk about. There's lots. There's looking back at what happened. There's looking back at the stuff blowing up today and taking a look at the stuff that might be blowing up tomorrow. We'll talk about it all in the next Ricochet flagship podcast.
0: And what are you doing with this information? Were you feeding it to media or writing on your blog about it? Uh, like, how are you
1: getting word out to expose this? I primarily just posted it on okay. Twitter, made videos about it. Um, yeah, okay. just would get it and post a picture and say, here's my district. Here's uh Waukegan public schools, district 60. Here's what's happening. Um, I never named students and I, I never named teachers, um, and, and you're a one man
0: um, show doing this, right? This is just you on your free time, right?
1: Yeah, this is just me um kind of running it all and it was, it was a very kind of it, it, hectic time. It was, it was a, there was a mixture of like adrenaline and this thrill kind of like, like I can't believe I'm doing this is like, you know, kind of a lot of teachers, you know, revenge fantasy like I get to strike back against this empire I've been serving under and you know, had to keep quiet about um and, and then at the same time, like you realize that you're on, uh, I used to describe it to people as like one of those Western movies where they're, they're robbing the train and it's about to go off. And I'm like, you know, how much money can I get in the bag, you know, or information can I get out before I go right off the cliff? Um, and I also had to think too, about my family, you know, I'm thinking about my wife and kid. I'm like, what point might there be another opportunity that comes up? When do I, do I ride this all the way out? You know, Crash and burn with it, or do I jump off at some point? Um, yeah.
0: Yeah, and let's talk a little bit about you know you ended up leaving, and so you it was about this time last year, if I'm recalling correctly. Um, what was that exit like? And then I guess what are what are the options for teachers who decide to speak out and and really eventually
1: leave? Sure. Yeah, it was January actually of this year, and okay. uh, very early January, and. I went to, I, I realized that at some point I was going to have to uh, jump ship. I mean, otherwise, you know, I could have, like, they could have gone after my license if they wanted to. And they probably would have said, because I was unethically leaking, they were making this argument that I was violating something they called teacher privacy, which I didn't mm-hmm. know existed, but apparently that's their argument. So they were going to, or they were going to evaluate me out, um, start, you know, just scoring me negatively and then, uh, ruining, you know, what was a good record after over 10 years and some, you know, achievements. And I, I didn't want that. So I went to the, uh, school board meeting, and I laid into the superintendent, called out exactly what I felt she was doing.
3: Whenever you're ready, your time will start. Okay. My name is Frank McCormick and I've been a teacher here for 10 years. Sorry, the superintendent couldn't be here. Um, this system offers adults job security and a paycheck for little more than one's obedience compliance and silence a lot of it's about maintaining the illusion that we're a functioning school district i've decided to speak out as penance for my years of silence while my students suffered our schools are on the verge of collapse from behavioral chaos violence staff burnout and a 10 to 12 percent student proficiency rate in math and reading these are the fruits of miss placentia's half decade with the district for which she has been rewarded a 45% increase in her base salary, earning her over $300,000 a year with a taxpayer-funded pension worth $16 million. The only thing that would put an end to her plunder of this impoverished community would be the community's awakening to her record of failure. And I suspected she knew that, which is why her subtle racial demagoguery against teachers and invocations of the specter of systemic racism is so deviously ingenious. She has seized and upon national using volatility...
1: These kind of ideologies political both... Political Um, you know, because she, I think she believed them, but also I think there was this kind of Machiavellian element in that it took um, the focus away from academics and the school's failure. And it kind of made it about like these social issues that got people fired up, like, well, there's racism in the schools and this and that. So I I laid in and then um, I, you know, sent in my resignation letter and walked away. And um, in terms of, you know, what comes after, I. I would say that, you know, it's definitely an adjustment. Um, The longer you've been in teaching, I would say you become kind of indoctrinated into this way the world works and this way of thinking, like you've kind of learned to survive in a bureaucratic model of the world that just doesn't exist outside schools. And so, you know, you have to work hard to really change your thinking and paradigm and be flexible and understand that. The idea of like permanent job security does not exist and, and that that's okay. You know, it kind of also requires you to like become a little more confident in your own capabilities because I think that's an unintended kind of consequences that a lot of teachers don't realize is you they, the union has you focused so much on this idea of like keeping your job through like this permanent job security through this bureaucratic process. You forget that you're capable of keeping your job because you have talent. And so then you start to think, and this is very common amongst law teachers, they start to think, what would I do outside of teaching? I have no skills. I, I only have this job because I'm in a good, I have a good union and they protect it, which is it's it's really a toxic idea that starts to develop in a lot of teachers. And uh, once you break that though, you'll find that it's just it's not true. And there are opportunities out there, and a lot of people too, for every person on the far left that won't want to hire you because of your record, there's going to be someone on the other side too, that's going to say, Hey, that's kind of cool. I want this, guy, you know, to work for me or I'll take a chance in them. So we, we forget that sometimes. And I would tell, encourage people, understand the risks, but don't, um, don't make it a catastrophe that it doesn't have to be uh, before you've had the, given yourself the shot.
2: In your estimation, um, how effective is what the schools are doing to, you know, indoctrinate kids? How effective is it? I, I mean, are, do, I mean, we I think we all have our own views on this, but I mean, do do you think that these kids, this whole generation of kids, because we know this is happening in almost every school district in the country, we know this. I mean, I know this is happening at you know all the elite private schools in the country. It's happening it happening in almost every school in the United States. Um, it, are we indoctrinating a whole generation of children? Do you think?
1: Yeah, I do think so. I think it's, it's very effective because students trust their teachers and they view them as the authority, you know, while they are, they're, their authority figures. And so they view them with a sense of kind of awe that these are, you know, um, I, I think for many high school students, middle school students, um, Across the country, that their teacher may be sometimes like in their mind, not necessarily it's true, but like the smartest person they know. You know, my dad's in, I don't know, he does something in business and my mom does something in business, but this teacher knows all about history and English and they're really smart and, and they've been exposing me to these other things that have kind of opened my worldview. So I started to think about, you know, during 2020 when, you know, American cities are basically burning down. And I saw in my own town windows being boarded up and we're like, what is going on? And you know, lines out gun stores and no one can buy ammunition. I'm like, this is nuts. And I noticed, you know, being a history teacher, I said, let me kind of like, look at the pattern here. And I started to see, you know, a lot of college age students involved. And I would talk to people about it and they'd say, well, yeah, because you know what they're getting in college. I said, okay, yeah, that makes sense. I said, I'd ask them, do you think there's some of that going on in, in high schools? And sometimes they would say, yeah, there's, th- yeah, I do think it's, you know, there's been some of that. And um, then I started to see it get worse. And I said, man, what happens if, you know, the, the kind of ideology that dominated uh, universities and radicalized kind of college students who at least had a chance to like be like defend themselves somewhat from that ideology or had their parents could raise them with some like values and like, Uh, insulate them from that I said this is like a this is like fertile soil for an ideology to take root in, in a new generation of students I said and the next time there's like a spark like that and you have um radical revolutionary potential kind of baked into the social fabric you know historically things get very ugly very quickly and um we've seen it you know many times throughout history where it's, it's young people who lead right. these, these revolutions as young people who support fascist movements um, in, in the numbers they need.
0: And it's different. I mean, teaching a 10 year old, this type of stuff versus a 20 year old, like your brain is at a very different place when you're 20. And so when you're 10, you don't question. Um, and so, right. It, it, just, it, it gets baked in there. Uh, and, and, you know, unfortunately, I think it, if anything, it just makes it easier to, to, more of it in. So it's 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 a little scary. So if if um if this is being effective, what are some ideas on how to undo it? Like how do we get out of this? Um are you working on a deprogramming course or something in your free time now?
1: Yeah I mean I've I've been exploring like a lot of different ideas about how you could do that. And it's 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 been difficult finding like what the kind of right formula is. you know, speaking more, more broadly. I mean, I do think like parents really have to take an active role in asking their kid every day, what did you learn about? And they'll say, ah, nothing. I don't know. No, no, really. Like, you know, can I see your homework? I see like your reading books, you know, and just do it, do it as a point of interest. Like, I'm just curious, you know, take advantage of the tools that, you know, are available for you to find out, like what is uh, going on in the classroom. A lot of times we don't do that. And and then have conversations with your kids and then you're in a position at least to have some evidence to fight it and, and to bring it. I think that's a strategy. Um, I think on a bigger scale, like how can Can we, can think, we stop on that for one second? Oh, sure. Let,
2: let's say let's say a parent. And I think this is hard um, yeah. for parents to identify. I think what the left has done and what these critical theorists and, and whatever you want to label them has done over the, you know, the long march of the institutions is it's brilliant in the way they can co-op words and distract us with, with nice sounding words, but it, it, let, let's assume even that parents can figure out what is happening in their schools, busy parents, right. That are going to take the time to investigate and figure out what can they do. I mean, you know, they, they contact a school and the schools and we're not teaching CRT, right. I mean that, you know, we went through that. Um, what do you think parents could do?
1: Well, um, I I don't mean if to anything. sound pessimistic. Yeah, I don't mean to sound okay. pessimistic, but but not not a whole lot because the the public education has kind of evolved and been shaped to protect itself and insulate itself from uh, the types of questions and inquiry that's needed to like affect change because it serves the people uh, working inside it best and so, you know, outside of like having a conversation with your kid and doing the best you can on an individual level. Um, I I would say that like, we need to create more awareness, people need to be kind of more awake to what's going on inside schools. So um, I think that's a strategy if parents can at least find out and communicate mm-hmm. that work in their communities with other parents and, and make take take a chance and talk to their parents and say, were you aware this is what's going on? And um, you know, form, form groups and networks that, that look at this stuff. Um, but I, I think, unfortunately, you know, it's also going to require probably like a, a political solution that's somewhat bigger at some point. You're going to need to kind of take away the power of public education to uh, monopolize uh, education as it has and to protect itself the way it has. And, you know, you can do that through maybe school choice bills. I know a lot of people say, well, that's not the answer. To, um, well, of course, it's not the answer to everything, but it's a starting point, at least to take away some of what I saw when I was there is like the school has so much power because there's no competition. Right. And, right. and, and they knew that they used to. I mean, we, we had a few times parents would like complain to the superintendent because a, a frustrated administrator would say, well, where else are you going to go? And they were right. Uh, they just you know, weren't supposed to say that out loud.
0: <laughs> so, I mean, I'm going to push back a little bit. I, I think that I do think parents speaking up and sending the emails to teachers and sending emails and showing up like I think that that actually can make a difference. And there are two problems. One. Not enough people are doing that. And it could be because they don't know or they don't have the comp A, they don't know, they don't have the confidence to do it. They're worried about the consequences on their kids. But I would argue that if you do it and you just continue asking questions, that 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 that's where you have to start. Um, and that you actually could enter some pretty good dialogues about that. But two, they have to start talking to their to their friends about it. And mm. it is this stuff is not that complicated. If you read, you know, a couple books, you know, several articles, I think. It I is. think- Really, and I see. I yeah, think you, I, think I really you can think it a, is. I think you can get a sense of what's going on, which is that schools are pushing political agendas on kids—radical um, political agendas—enough to ask questions.
1: Yeah, at a basic level, like we we know. I think a lot of people. This is the problem: is a lot of people know what's going on, but they lack sometimes the language to like describe it. They'll say, "Well, there's indoctrination in CRT," and and I know and they're worried
0: they too. They they're, they're, and, and worried, they're worried about worried. yeah. Yeah. Of the consequences on themselves
1: they get tripped up easily because the teachers as well explain to me what critical pedagogy is and and they can't so you know where where is crt in school but they're 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 referring to something broader and they can give examples but it is it is hard so there's i see both kind of sides of what you're saying and uh beth i will agree with you like i definitely think parents can have a huge impact but i guess my point is is that um what it kind of is is it's the necess- it's like kind of like the fertilizer for political change so it's, it's mm-hmm. essential that parents do that but I think ultimately the solution will probably have to be something through through legislation because legislation got us into this and unfortunately it's it's really probably going to be the way out of it or through like some type of court ruling um, court decision but um, that that does have to begin with parents you can't have political action or political change unless you get you know uh, the population and and the base kind of uh informed and active and that's where parents can really start um moving the wheels of change it's just it's going to be hard but i i think it's definitely worth it and um you to start somewhere
2: and how about more dissident teachers like yourself how do we find them encourage them help them support them or is that even possible
1: yeah that's that's a tough question it's something that like uh you know, Paul Rossi and I talk about very frequently, like, what can we, what, you know, what can we do for teachers and how do we get them, um, get them involved? I think for a lot of teachers at the end of the day, they want to keep their jobs there. They, some of them have, you know, insecurities of I've been in public education for so long, what am I going to do? So I think the, the way forward is to help them navigate as best they can within that system. Now that's, I'm not saying that's ideal. I'm just saying that's probably the most realistic way to get people to do something um, without, you know, totally sacrificing their, their jobs. But I will say this, if, you know, some of us, you know, Paul Rossi and myself, and there was Tony Kinnett, like there was kind of a group of us that kind of connected nationally. And we, we, we've talked amongst each other. And one of our frustrations is that, we felt we kind of made like up, like, you know, the, the first we we took the first series of blows. We kind of softened them up and we opened the door a little bit for other teachers. Like, Hey, come on guys. Like you can, you know, we've taken some of the heat. We've made a a big wave. Now you can come out and do it too. And so many teachers were just like, they they just stood there and they're like, yeah, we know we support you, but we're not doing it. And, um, I think, you know, that, would, that was kind of sad and disappointing for us. But I think, you know, teachers can provide so much legitimacy because that's what they rely on those arguments. You've never been a teacher. You, you don't know what it's like in the classroom. What would you know? You're just a parent, you know, just a parent, of course, um, as if that's not, you know, the most important thing in a child's life. But uh, yeah, but when a teacher comes out and we can testify and speak to that, it adds legitimacy. It also makes you really dangerous. They they will really want to go after you and they get really nasty and vicious because that is like the ultimate, you know, kind of um, sacrilege is being like a, a part but you're, of that. But you've betrayed
0: the profession. Yeah,
1: you've betrayed, you know, you're, that was the whole point of my blog is heresy. You're a heretic and, yeah. you know, they, they we're going to burn you at the stake for daring to question the tenets of our faith. All
2: right, last question. You have children, right? Or what?
1: Yes. I have uh one song.
2: Sick. I don't know how old, but what, what are you, what are you going to do about schooling? I mean, have you thought about it or.
1: Yeah. That's, that's something I get asked a lot. I I'll, I'll be honest. I think because I'm so involved in what's going on and because I like fight so much of this and get to invest so much time on a personal level, I think there's part of me that like, is just like hoping that they maybe know a little bit about who I am to like stay away from that. but also it's something um, I've had family members ask they said, well, what are you gonna do about?" And And um, I'm always like, gosh, I haven't thought about that because I don't like I don't want to go, I don't want to bring those kind of two worlds together. but it's a really good question. It's something I'm thinking about. And um, I, I'm thinking about, you know, if, if I can get involved in forming something in my local community where we kind of use some of the tactics and methods that I, had developed um, like and and learned through my experience and we can take my kind of insider knowledge and put that to use for the community. I'm like, we could probably, uh, you know, get a lot of information and make some waves and and keep them kind of on their toes. I think that will do a lot if you scare, if people are scared about their jobs. um, I'm not saying like you want to like put fear in them, but they know that there's some accountability and like, yeah, if you do kind of bring things in that are very explicitly political, like you might risk your job. That will influence teacher behavior a lot and the union will then start to take a stance on it like you will see the union start to tell teachers stay away from this because the unions primarily are about one thing and one thing only keeping teachers jobs that's it and so if you can start to make uh, it risky to a teacher's job to bring in their politics into the classroom unions will start to give them very explicit advice on how to conduct themselves and you might see a broader change.
2: Frank, on behalf of two parents, Beth and myself, thank you for what you have done in exposing what schools are doing to our children because some of what teachers are saying are right. We're not in the classroom. You know, Some of us saw what was going on in Zoom. Some of us were able to talk to our kids and, and piece together some of what the schools are doing, but nobody can do that unless they are in the classroom so uh, on behalf of parents everywhere uh, thank you for exposing uh, and for fighting for uh, our children and for education and for joining us today on take back our
1: schools thank you so much i really appreciate it and i had a great time being here
0: A lot of courage. And I just wish there were more teachers out there that could, would do the same, but it does come at great cost. There's no question. um, And I'm sure it's taken a toll on him. Um, You know, and it's great. He had a supportive wife in this. I don't think you could do it otherwise. But yeah, we need, we need to increase those numbers. Um, He, yeah, you know, I think it must have been i wanted to talk a little bit more just about how this had had played out in his school because it is a low income school and i think these messages and this like focus on activism over math and reading and really does take a toll and I, I think it's something that maybe we can bring him back and talk about that but it it had to i mean i think he he has paid a great personal price and i'm sure it was difficult um to, to leave teaching I, I think he really liked it and you know he's no longer yeah. doing it
2: yeah, no, agreed. Um, but to your point, I mean the amount of time and money. I've seen some slides that he's done for other presentations. And you know, he's he's talking about a you know relatively low-income school where the administration says we don't really have money for books and we don't really have money for resources, and and then they go and spend, I think, I think in one slide he had uh, you know, over half a million dollars on you know DEI consultants or or di training or something like that and you're and you know so we all talk about schools don't have enough resources but look at where they're spending it we look at where their time in the classroom is now spent on looking at everything through the lens of anti-racism or crt or gender ideology and then we see you know national report card of single digits Uh or low double digits people kids reading and doing math at grade level
0: Yep, but without okay. people showing up and, and pointing that out.
3: Whenever you're ready, will your start. OK. My name is Frank McCormick, and I've been a teacher here for 10 years. Sorry, the superintendent couldn't be here. Um, this system offers adults job security and a paycheck for little more than one's obedience, compliance, and silence. A lot of it's about maintaining the illusion that we're a functioning school district. I've decided to speak out as penance for my years of silence while my students suffered. Our schools are on the verge of collapse from behavioral chaos, violence, staff burnout, and a 10 to 12% student proficiency rate in math and reading. These are the fruits of Ms. Placentia's half decade with the district, for which she has been rewarded a 45% increase in her base salary, earning her over 300,000 a year with a taxpayer funded pension worth $16 million. The only thing that would put an end to her plunder of this impoverished community would be the community's awakening to her record of failure. And I suspected she knew that, which is why her subtle racial demagoguery against teachers and invocations of the specter of systemic racism is so deviously ingenious. She has seized upon national racial volatility to create an incredibly convenient excuse for her regime's failures. Suddenly, this is no longer about her incompetence, but the ghosts of implicit bias and racism haunting our schools, which she will now exercise through diversity, equity, and inclusion rights that will cost the district millions. The narrative she has seized upon has emboldened the ideological infiltration of critical theories into the district and classroom. What does this look like? Let me share two examples. You have students reading books and receiving lessons, equating our police force, those that have to clean up her mess in the schools, with Confederate slave patrols and a survey for ninth grade students I uncovered asking children if they, and I quote, orgasmed during their last hookup. All of this is undergirded by her equity plan that that according to district emails will dismantle our white dominant culture. What does that encompass? Shifting the blame for placencia's failures onto teachers with dozens of hours of implicit bias training and an until now unannounced plan to abolish our alternative program. She is opening Pandora's box with these radical, critical ideologies. However well-intentioned people think they are, they will increase the racialization of an an already fractured community and impart upon our students identitarian lenses that center skin color as the central part of their existence. Or what was referred to in the training by the, the district paid for as liberatory education. So carelessly does she unleash these forces she hasn't even considered the social implications of an increasingly racially conscious and radicalized youth. Suppose the moment in history comes when economic conditions are dire. In that case, our youth's perceptive stratification of racial groups into oppressor or oppressed classes will come to fruition in a social storm that will tear this country apart. Ms. Placencia is a member of a bureaucratic class of charlatans and frauds, enriching herself at the expense of an impoverished community while students suffer. Her tenure with the district should come to an immediate end, and I hope that after the Waukegan community finds the voice to make that happen, they will challenge the foundations of this rotten system. Good night. Next name on the list is Phil Maione.
0: Oh, the schools come to the conclusion that, oh, we haven't, we haven't done enough equity. And so they double down right. on it. I know that's happening in Evanston. They have these lousy test scores that have gotten worse and their answer is more. And, you yeah. know, unless people show up to question that and um, hold teachers, administration schools accountable, it will continue. And that's yeah, I, I agree. But I
2: also, I look, I, I think I, I tend to agree with what Frank said, which is we're not, fi- we, we need parents fighting. We, we need dissident teachers. You know, we need, Parents running for school boards and all the things that you know we're doing as a movement, but this isn't getting solved with that. Um, yeah, I'd agree. The only shot of this getting solved is, I think, what Frank says is, is, is legislative and court case based. I mean, we have to shut down. You know the the, the school choices and it's a complicated issue, which we should talk about on maybe another episode. It's necessary, but it's not sufficient because we know plenty of the schools outside of the public schools are have the same, if not even worse problems. So but,
0: you think we need like anti-DEI legislation, anti-CRT legislation? Like what do you mean? I I do,
2: I, you know, and it's an interesting, I, it's something I'm meaning to write about is, is, you know, Florida and their Stop Woke legislation has gotten... Craze, obviously, from many on the right and Mm
0: -hmm.
2: criticism criticism. from many libertarian leaning, classical liberal leaning, centrist leaning that this overreaches. Um, I don't think it overreaches. Certainly not in the case I I do. So we're actually, I mean, you're the more conservative than I am. I'm more the classical liberal libertarian. But I think that this is coming down from the federal government. And this is coming down from the monopolization of of schools and the power of the unions. Mm-hmm. Um, the only shot we have is for states to counteract that. And the only power they have to do that is through this kind of legislation. But, um, now you, go ahead.
0: Oh, well, I was just gonna say, how is it that, what is it, Title Six? Like how 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 doesn't existing legislation apply? Like you cannot divide and treat kids differently or teachers. By race, um, period, end of story. I mean, it's basically what it says. Well,
2: we now, well, but the Civil Rights Act changed that, and and subsequent court cases changed that. I mean, that was, you know, no, we, that's what
0: the whole that the Evanston school teacher, That's what her case rests on, and I, which which I think is solid ground too. So, but I don't know, maybe. T- it's it's sorry just complicated. To Tell me what
2: you think. No, no, no. Well, I don't. We we. Well, and it's to be determined, episode, I, guess. I guess. Yeah, I mean, we we could we could bring in some you know some lawyers to talk. I. I We're not, I don't know if we're solving these issues. We have to completely reform or repeal the 1964 Civil Rights Act um, that went from colorblind individual rights to group rights. (laughs) And we have to bring back freedom of association. I'll go further. Freedom of association. Um, (laughs) You know, this is not solving, getting solved by parents showing up at school board meetings, as important as that is. I mean, there are institutional, you know, things that have to fundamentally change to solve our education problems and to solve our societal problems and they're very much related um, and this is obviously a topic for a broader topic
0: it is and and to keep keep it in context I mean this has taken decades so it's not like this is going to be over ne- this time next year I mean this is this is a decades old problem and I'd hate to say that it's going to take decades but we should be realistic in terms of the the time,
2: if we're going to win, it's going to take decades. You know, they they took decades to march through the institutions. One could argue it's progressive education that goes back more than you know 100 years that started this. Certainly, since you know the 1960s, um, we're going to have to do the same. There's no quick fix here, and that's one of the challenges of getting you know philanthropic money on our side. That our side tends to want the home run. And, you know, the quarterly metrics and the other side will spend an enormous amount of money on the long game. We don't do that. Mm-hmm. And we're going to have to do that. And, you know, that's why yes, school choice is getting too much attention. It, it needs to get attention. They need to, you know, strike while the iron's hot. I get that. We do need school choice long term. We do need to break the monopolies. But if it gets too much attention, it distracts from the bigger issues because school choice is not going to solve these indoctrination issues in, in schools. Um, it's going to take time. The the scary thing, and I frank kind of alluded to this, and I wrote a piece about this recently on my Substack, is, if you look at how liberal, how progressive young people are, Gen Z, it's mm-hmm. terrifying. And, uh, you know, they voted, you know, like, s- by 40 points, 50 points in some state races in this past elections, um, for Democrats. Now, most of those voters are millennials and older Gen Z who only got this indoctrination in college. Now we're indoctrinating kids starting at kindergarten or even younger. This is terrifying. Mm -hmm. We're going to have a president AOC in our future, not in 24, but not that far in the future if we don't reverse what schools are doing. Mm -hmm. That's really scary. Um, We have to do that. It's going to take a long time to do that, but Mm -hmm. But if we don't do that quickly, we're in even deeper trouble. So
0: agreed. Uh, And quite frankly, I think it starts it starts in the family unit. It starts with what is going into your child's head and your knowledge about that. And so I would I would ask that parents start really checking those backpacks and becoming more active and rolling up sleeves because it's that is there are no backpacks
2: anymore. Here's, Here's the thing. It's all of Yeah. Well,
0: virtual backpacks. No, I I, I mean, but um, I I don't mean to
2: criticize. I mean, the the truth of the matter is, no, but it's harder for schools. It's harder to detect
0: Absolutely. We're not looking. They don't have textbooks
2: anymore. No, they don't. My daughter's school has no
0: textbooks.
2: No school boards used to approve
0: textbooks. And now teachers are encouraged. They grab stuff off YouTube and, you know, and random. I mean, I, I wrote something about the garbage that was pulled off the YouTube for my son's class a couple years ago thing was like a political um it there was a there was a uh it was like a fundraising thing for extreme you know climate change i mean it was just it was bizarre so i agree it's complicated but
2: gotta keep pushing there's no cavalry coming do. so that okay. here's
0: the message there's no cavalry coming you are the cavalry <laughs> so well, we, we, have... we are we are we're all the cavalry i mean <laughs> we all are
2: of us. we have to be all right on that note so, we yeah. have plenty more to talk about in future episodes there's some interesting issues um On behalf of Beth Feely, I am Andrew Gutman. Thank you very much for tuning in to Take Back Our Schools. And as always, if you like us, please subscribe and review us and share us. And we will talk to you again soon.